This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad, too, so let's get right to it. The new moneymaker scratch off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money Maker. Play the game and you could win money. Up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Money Maker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. Due to the graphic nature of these crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of violence and murder that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. Isabel kept one eye on the back door as she sat at the kitchen table. She was enjoying a chat with her friend, Sandra Wilkman, but soon she would have to wrap up the conversation. It was getting late, and her six-year-old son, Timmy, would be back any minute, along with Sandra's son, Jason. They had given their boys permission to play in nearby Hazelnut Park earlier that afternoon, but both boys knew well enough to be home before dinner time. Isabel was turning to check the clock when she heard a piercing shriek from outside. She immediately leapt out of her chair. The sound was coming from a child, her child. She instinctively stepped toward the back door just as Timmy burst through it. The boy flew into Isabel's arms. Isabel held him close, feeling a rising panic as he trembled against her. Before she could ask him what happened, He turned his tear-streaked face to her and said, A man took Jason and drove off. He threw Jason in his car. He stole Jason. Hi, I'm Lainey Hobbs, and this is Crimes of Passion, a ParCast original. The legal definition of a crime of passion is a violent crime that occurs in the throes of extreme emotion, leaving no time to reflect on the consequences. But in this show, we explore how the passions of our relationships sometimes lead us to criminal activity. How does a husband and wife become killer and victim, or killer and co-conspirator? If there's a thin line between love and hate, what manipulates our relationships into deadly results. You can find episodes of Crimes of Passion and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Crimes of Passion for free on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Crimes of Passion in the search bar. At Parcast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing, Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, 
the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. This week, we're covering the one-sided infatuation between 14-year-old Ming Sen Shu and his 22-year-old teacher, Mary Stauffer. We'll also see how Ming's mental health declined over the course of the next 15 years until his crush grew to a dangerous obsession. Next week, we'll discuss Ming's terrifying efforts to keep Mary in his life and under his control, as well as how she resisted. Ming Sen Shu was born on October 15, 1950, in Taiwan. His Chinese-born parents were high-achieving academics. His father was an expert in forestry and conservation, and his mother, May, was a high school mathematics instructor. When Ming was eight, his father was recruited to teach at the University of Minnesota. The family immigrated to the United States, relocating to the quiet suburb of Roseville, just outside of Minneapolis and St. Paul. It was an exciting but challenging adjustment for the family. Unfortunately, the family had to contend with tragedy not long after the move. When Ming was 11 years old, his father died of cancer. As the eldest son, Ming dutifully stepped into his role as head of the family. The idea of filial piety is a central tenet in Chinese culture. The concept calls on children to respect and obey their elders. Ming used it as an excuse to terrorize his family. Now that he was the man of the house, as he put it, he felt he had license to dominate his two younger brothers, seven-year-old Charles and two-year-old Ron, and to abuse them when they resisted him. Charles later said, the relationship was not like brothers. It was a master-servant relationship. Ming required his younger brothers to wait on him, carry his books, take off his socks and shoes, prepare his meals, and even feed him. If they failed to meet his standards, he beat them with a belt. His brother Ron was tasked with warning Ming whenever their mother's car pulled into the garage. One day, Ming caught Ron sleeping when he was supposed to be keeping lookout. As punishment, Ming pushed Ron into the oven, held the door closed, and turned it on and off several times. Ming's behavioral problems worsened in adolescence, and he started showing signs of sexual deviancy. Neighbors complained that he was a peeping Tom. Ron said that Ming once commanded him to go into their mother's room and grab her breast while she slept. When he refused, Ming beat him. One night, when Ming was 13, his mother awoke to find him shining a flashlight at her under the blankets. She quickly yanked the flashlight away and scolded him. Just as she was about to send him back to bed, she realized that he had cut a hole in her pajamas. She couldn't believe it. Her teenage son was trying to examine her genitals. It made her sick. She worried about what else he might have done while she was sleeping. Though Ming was still young, he had already developed sexually predatory behavior. Before I continue with Ming's psychology, please note, I am not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but I have done a lot of research for the show. In 1990, 
Researchers Jean G. Abel and Joanne L. Rolu published a study of 561 male sex offenders. They found that over 50% of the respondents admitted to having developed at least one sexually aberrant interest prior to the age of 18. For those with voyeuristic tendencies, half the respondents reported that their urges began by the time they had reached the age of 15. Soon, Ming's behavior escalated further, and he was forced to undergo treatment. In July of 1964, 13-year-old Ming was arrested after he was caught setting fire to some apartment units on his paper route. At Ming's delinquency hearing, a judge sentenced him to probation and ordered him to receive psychiatric counseling. When psychiatrists evaluated Ming, they were so troubled by his behavior that they admitted him into an adolescent mental health unit for further observation. His frequent lying, destruction of property, and violent, aggressive behavior were consistent with conduct disorder. This developmental condition is often a precursor to antisocial personality disorder. Ming's doctors recommended long-term residential treatment and transferred him to a psychiatric unit at the University of Minnesota Hospitals. His therapist described him as deeply troubled, but Ming didn't believe he needed help and resisted participating in his psychotherapy sessions. In September of 1965, 14-year-old Ming's juvenile probation period ended, once he was no longer court-ordered to undergo therapy, he stopped attending sessions. His mother didn't press him to continue treatment, perhaps because she couldn't control him, but also because she worried about the stigma associated with mental illness. She later said that the family did not discuss these issues openly, out of fear that they would lose face. The Chinese concept of face, or mianzi, refers to one's social position or prestige in society. Public health researcher Lawrence Yang and medical anthropologist Arthur Kleinman wrote about the loss of face within Chinese culture as it relates to mental illness. They said that social capital is achieved through upholding social obligations. People with mental illness are often perceived as unpredictable and therefore unable to uphold such obligations. This doesn't merely affect the individual's social standing, but affects the status of the entire family. Perhaps Ming's mother felt that calling more attention to Ming's health might destroy his reputation along with the family's. But the decision to stop treatment worried Ming's doctors. One wrote to the juvenile judge, stating that Ming was highly disturbed and shouldn't have been released from probation. The judge responded that he was not aware that the doctors had felt so strongly about Ming's condition. He said he would not have released Ming from probation if he had known of the severity of the diagnosis. Despite this miscommunication between the doctors and the court, there was no further review and Ming was discharged without further supervision. Doctors knew that there could be serious ramifications if Ming refused treatment, but they were evidently powerless to intervene. Ming returned home in 1965 and enrolled in Alexander Ramsey High School that fall. In his algebra class, Ming encountered a first-year teacher, 22-year-old Mary Stauffer. 
Mary was born on June 20th, 1943 in Duluth, Minnesota to a devout Baptist family. In 1964, at the age of 21, she married her high school sweetheart, Irving Stauffer. The following year, she graduated from college with a degree in mathematics and took a position at Alexander Ramsey High School. There, she taught Ming Sen Shu, but he never stood out to her as a troublemaker. In fact, he was a model student. Former FBI criminal profiler Greg McCrary has said that people with psychopathic tendencies are highly skilled at compartmentalizing. They often even take pleasure in leading double lives because it gives them a feeling of superiority to deceive those around them. McCrary said, I call it duping delight. They take great pleasure in duping people and getting over on them because it's an indicator of how smart and brilliant they are. Ming learned to excel at this kind of double life. At home, he continued to terrorize his younger brothers. Charles said this continued until they were in their late teens and he was big enough to defend himself. But at school, Ming seemed to get his worst impulses under control. He displayed exceptional abilities in science and technology. In his first year, his grades were average, but he later earned straight A's. He also became an accomplished athlete, earning a spot on his school's wrestling, baseball, football, and track teams. Nobody at Alexander Ramsey High School, least of all Mary Stauffer, could have guessed that Ming was secretly nurturing an obsession with his teacher. Ming sat in the back of the classroom, closed his eyes, and let his mind wander. As usual, he pictured Mrs. Stauffer's face. Perhaps she was thinking about him at this very moment. Ming was sure that she must have noticed him. He was disappointed that she hadn't yet reached out to him. They had not yet had a real conversation beyond superficial pleasantries. Perhaps her sense of propriety was keeping her from showing interest. She was, after all, a teacher. And she was married. No doubt to a man who failed to appreciate her. A man who couldn't love her. Not the way Ming did. Poor teacher. Unfulfilled and unsatisfied. She needed Ming to lead her to true happiness. Ming wondered if she would ever realize that for herself, or if he would have to show her. Author Eileen Bridgman Biernot covered Ming Sen Shu in her book, Stalking Mary. She also holds a master's degree in counseling and a BA in psychology. She noted the similarities between the first target of Ming's sexual curiosity, his own mother, and Mary Stauffer. Physically, both were petite women who dressed modestly, rarely wearing jewelry or makeup. Both were math teachers. The two women even shared the same initials, M and S. Biernot wrote, The psychological defense mechanism of displacement can explain what was at work in Shu's mind. He shifted his yearning from his mother when he finally realized she was not an acceptable target of his sexual desire to a more acceptable and less threatening target, Mary Stauffer. 
Though Ming's fantasies continued to intensify, he kept his desires to himself. He knew he would be forced into more therapy if he told anyone about his daydreams. Then he wouldn't be able to see Mary anymore. But despite his discretion, he lost contact with Mary after only a couple of years. In 1968, Mary's husband Irving became involved in a student missionary project in the Philippines. She soon joined him and the couple spent the next few years in Southeast Asia. Ming was upset by Mary's departure, but did not let it affect his performance at school. He continued to distinguish himself. In 1969, Ming graduated at the top of his class of 503 students. He was voted the student most likely to succeed. After high school, Ming enrolled in the University of Minnesota, but the pressures of college were too much for him. He reportedly became distressed after he failed a calculus test. He dropped out of university shortly after his first year. In the wake of this failure, Ming returned to the familiar comfort of his obsession with Mary Stauffer. She still hadn't returned to Minnesota, but Ming was confident that she would come back one day. He crafted wild and elaborate fantasies about their reunion and imagined a future together. But these weren't pleasant daydreams. The more Ming obsessed over Mary, the more his thoughts turned to violence. He began to write his fantasies down in his journal. His writing shows that he didn't just want to be with Mary. He wanted to control and abuse her. When we return, we'll talk about Mary Stoffer's life outside of Ming Sen Shu's growing delusions. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Sound the gifting panic alarm. You need to get an amazing gift. Wait, no, the perfect gift. Relax. Now you can use gift mode on Etsy. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And Gift Mode instantly gives you curated gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. Now it's simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a housewarming gift for the new homeowner or a birthday present for the pickleballer, Gift Mode has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. Now, back to the story. In 1971, 21-year-old Ming Sen Shu dropped out of university because he couldn't handle the stress. Soon after that, his former obsession with Mary Stauffer, his 28-year-old high school teacher, reemerged. He imagined new, twisted fantasies involving Mary, which grew more depraved than ever before. But Ming 
hid this fixation from those around him. In public, he seemed to live a normal life. After leaving college, he moved back to his childhood home and opened an electronics repair store in Minneapolis called Sound Equipment Services Incorporated. He maintained a distant but polite manner with his customers and employees. Still, Ming never dated or pursued any intimate relationships. He didn't have time because he spent every free moment daydreaming about an elaborate fantasy world that revolved around unsuspecting women. Ming spent countless hours detailing his fantasies in his journal. Many of his stories centered on actresses or fictional characters in movies and television shows. Nearly all the women he found attractive projected a wholesome or maternal persona. Actresses like Julie Andrews and Florence Henderson, the mother from The Brady Bunch. Ming was consumed with visions of defiling these women with violent and sadistic sexual acts. But even as he wrote about causing these women pain through rape or rough sex, Ming clearly wanted to see himself as a heroic figure. Over and over again, in hundreds of pages of writing, he wrote out scenarios where he rescued these women from unhappy lives and forced them to fall in love with him, whether they wanted to or not. Dr. Stanley Samenow, an expert in criminal behavior, said that a sexual predator cares little about what his partner experiences. The idea is to conquer a body the individual regards himself as irresistible and seeks to have this affirmed. He is certain that any person whom he finds desirable will be attracted to him. This thinking occurs even with complete strangers whom he quickly regards as his property. Mary Stoffer was frequently featured in Ming's stories, but unsurprisingly, she had no idea that Ming was obsessed with her. She had no reason to ever think about Ming. Mary was busy living her life, devoted to her faith and family. But Ming increasingly devoted his time to thinking about her. Meanwhile, his life in the real world was changing. In 1972, when Ming was 22, his mother May remarried and moved to Virginia, along with her youngest son, Ron. She kept her house in Minnesota and Ming continued to live there. After his mother left, Ming's mental health rapidly deteriorated. He had no friends and no supportive social network. His brother, 19-year-old Charles, also continued to live in their childhood home. But Charles was so traumatized by the abuse Ming had inflicted on him in their youth that he refused to interact with him even when they shared a living space. Charles later said, My relationship with Ming was coexistence. He put up with me, I put up with him. But we never really talked to each other. He was just... Ming, you don't talk to him. Because of their estrangement, Charles did not realize the extent of his brother's dangerous delusions. With their mother gone, Ming resolved to find a woman who would replace her. He was determined to reconnect with the woman he considered his first crush, Mary Stoffer. So, Ming tracked down the address of a man named Irving Stoffer in Duluth, Minnesota. 
On July 4, 1972, Ming traveled to Duluth and broke into the Stauffer's home, armed with a gun. There, he found an elderly couple, but no Mary. Furious, he tied up the old man and woman and searched the house. Eventually, he found a few pictures of Mary and her husband. He hadn't been so far off after all. He pushed his gun into the face of the old man and demanded to know exactly who they were. The terrified man told him his name was Irving Stauffer. Ming didn't understand. He shook with rage and waved the photograph in front of the man's face. Weren't these pictures of Irving Stauffer? Terrified and confused, the couple told him that the pictures were of their son, Irving Stauffer Jr., and his wife. Ming had the wrong house. Frustrated, he asked for Mary's current whereabouts. The elder Stauffer stammered that she was living abroad with their son. Ming was devastated. He untied the Stauffers, threatened to kill them if they went to the police, and left. The Stauffers did report the incident, but it was recorded by Duluth police as a simple burglary. The incident demonstrated how easy it was for Ming to slip back into criminal behavior. He was no longer a teenage delinquent. He was now an adult with a job, but he was willing to risk everything in pursuit of a destructive fantasy. After leaving the Stauffer's residence, Ming returned home to his life of social isolation. Within a few years, his brother Charles moved out, married, and started a family. The brother ceased communication. Ming had many hours to spend alone with his journals, stoking the fire of his obsession and refining his sadistic fantasies. In 1974, 24-year-old Ming became obsessed with a movie entitled The Teacher. The film starred Angel Tompkins as a high school teacher who has an affair with her 18-year-old student. Ming ordered a copy of the VHS and watched the film over and over again. He incorporated the plot into several of his written stories. In March of 1976, Ming's mother May came for a visit. One night, as she lay in bed reading, Ming came in and laid down next to her. He said that he was cold and May allowed him to rest next to her. When she was ready to go to sleep, she asked him to return to his own room, but Ming didn't want to go. May told him that a 25-year-old man should sleep in his own bed. Finally, after May insisted, Ming angrily left. May said that Ming's demeanor changed following that incident. Ming's mother was previously the only person he showed affection to. He hugged and kissed her whenever they greeted each other. But after that night, he became cold towards her. Ming spent the next three long years alone until 1979. That year, his youngest brother, 19-year-old Ron, returned to Minnesota to attend college. He moved into the basement apartment of their childhood home, where Charles previously stayed. Ron did not get along with Ming any better than their brother had. The two men avoided each other as much as they could. So Ron didn't notice Ming's mounting obsessions, which had started to spin out of control. 
In May of 1979, 28-year-old Ming spotted an announcement in the Roseville Weekly newspaper about the Stauffer family. It revealed that they had returned to Minnesota for a year-long furlough. The family of four was staying in an apartment on Bethel University campus, less than five miles away from Ming's house. Ming was elated. After years spent trying to find Mary, Mary had come to him. He couldn't believe it. After 11 years, she was back. Ming considered it a sign that they were meant to be together. It was destiny. Finally, Ming had a way to relieve the constant pressure hovering over him. Once he and Mary were together, they would finally have a shared purpose. They would start over together. Mary would finally be happy. The month they returned, the Stoffers gave a presentation on their missionary work at Bethel University. Ming sat in the audience, watching Mary the entire time. He also loitered around the Bethel University campus and lingered in parking lots as Mary ran errands. He frequently attended services at the family's church, sitting behind Mary out of her view. He memorized her schedule and habits, what kind of food she liked to eat, and where her children went to school. Ming's behavior fit the patterns of a predatory stalker. Experts in forensic psychiatry Paul E. Mullen and Michelle Patti evaluated 168 cases of stalking in a 1999 study. They classified stalkers into different groups based on the individual's behavior and motivations, identifying them as the rejected, the intimacy seekers, the resentful, the predatory, and the incompetent. In Ming's case, he sought out sexual gratification and control by stalking Mary. Mullen and Patti said that for predatory stalkers, the voyeuristic elements, the stimulus to fantasy and the sadistic satisfactions of inducing fear and humiliating the victim combine to extend this type of stalking. For a brief period, just being in proximity of Mary was enough to satisfy Ming's fantasies, but his writings at the time indicated he didn't intend to just watch her for long. More disturbing actions were to come. He wrote that Mary was sending him secret signals to seduce her away from Irving. He fantasized about a reality where he would steal Mary away. Once she was in his clutches, she would be unable to resist him. When we return, Ming executes his sadistic plot to invade Mary's world and take control over her life. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God, this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, The Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, The Hargan Family Killings, wherever you get your podcasts. 
it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Now, back to the story. 29-year-old Ming Sen Shu lived an isolated life in the quiet suburbs of Roseville, Minnesota in 1979. He exhibited a number of violent antisocial tendencies and unhealthy obsessions. He was particularly fixated on his former high school math teacher, 36-year-old Mary Stauffer. Mary lived with her family in an apartment at Bethel University's campus in Arden Hills, Minnesota. She didn't know that Ming had tracked her down and followed her everywhere. Ming stalked Mary for several months until March of 1980. One Sunday, Ming followed the Stauffers to their church, where they announced that they would soon be returning to the Philippines to continue their missionary work. They planned to be gone for the next four years. When Ming heard this, he panicked. He almost grabbed Mary then and there, but he managed to restrain himself. Instead, he rushed home and cleared out a closet in his bedroom, dragging out boxes and clothes. He placed a blanket and pillow inside the space. Ming decided that he would not allow Mary to leave the country again. He was going to bring her to his home to live with him. On May 5th, 1980, Ming snuck onto the Bethel campus grounds and crept to the Stauffer's apartment. He used a blowtorch to shatter a glass patio door leading to the ground floor unit. When neighbors woke up and went to investigate, Ming ran away. On May 14th, nine days later, he tried again. This time, he managed to get into the building's interior where he tampered with the security system's motion sensor hallway lights, but again ran away when residents discovered his presence. The Stauffers didn't seem worried about these break-ins. Mary joked with a friend that they had nothing to steal anyway. If her in-laws had informed her of the break-in at their home eight years prior, the family apparently did not connect these two incidents together. The idea that somebody might try to hurt the family never occurred to Mary. As far as she knew, she had no enemies. During his third attempt, Ming broke into a utility room underneath the Stauffer's apartment. He found the point in the basement directly beneath Mary and Irving's bed and cut a hole in the ceiling. By poking his head through the hole, he could secretly listen to private conversations between Mary and her husband. This may be how Ming learned that Mary had an upcoming hair appointment at Carmen's Beauty Salon near the college campus. On Friday, May 16, 1980, at 3.45 in the afternoon, Mary left her apartment and drove to the hair salon. She brought her eight-year-old daughter Beth with her. The girl needed a haircut too. Ming followed their car closely in his van. When they parked and went inside, Ming kept driving, stopping at a park a few blocks away. 
He then tucked a gun into his waistband, got out of the van, and walked back to the hair salon. Ming was a strange-looking figure as he lurked back toward the salon. Despite the heat, he donned a heavy leather jacket. He wore large sunglasses to cover much of his face. He crouched low to the ground as he shuffled forward, trying to keep out of sight behind some shrubs. At 4.30 p.m., Mary and Beth Stauffer exited the salon and walked to the parking lot. As they came to their car, Ming crawled out of a nearby ditch. Mary thought he might be homeless at first, but then she saw his gun. He pointed it at her daughter and told Mary, I need a ride. She nodded slowly, not taking her eyes off the pistol. Ming ordered Mary to get behind the wheel and ushered Beth into the passenger seat. He squeezed in beside her, keeping his gun trained on the eight-year-old girl. Mary tried to ask him to put the weapon away, but he ignored her and told her to drive. She did as she was told, but continued to plead with him to leave Beth alone. She said that if he was in some kind of trouble, she could help and tried to appeal to his empathy. She spoke to him like a stranger. The fact that she didn't remember him cut Ming to his core. In his fantasies, he and Mary were in love. He thought she secretly longed for him to steal her away. Now, he saw she had forgotten the bond they shared. It made him angry. He told Mary to shut up and pointed her north down the interstate. Ming started to feel that familiar pressure push up against his brain. Being close to Mary was supposed to fix that, but it was worse than ever. The hot weight of dread and rage. Things were not going as planned. First, Mary wasn't alone. The daughter wasn't supposed to be part of this. She was part of Mary's old life that they were supposed to leave behind. Ming wasn't sure what to do about her. Next, there was the fact that Mary didn't know him. Ming had expected her to resist. It was only proper for a married woman to play coy. Ming knew that it would take time to break down her defenses. But Ming hadn't expected her to stare at him blankly. No recognition on her face. No memory of him at all. How could that be? For years, he had played out their reunion in his head. He had envisioned it as a monumental, earth-shattering moment for both of them. And she'd ruined it. She would pay for that. Mary drove until they were far from the city. They took back roads into the middle of the woods until they were in an isolated area with no witnesses. Then... Ming grabbed rope and duct tape from his pocket. He tied up Mary and Beth and forced them into the trunk of the car. He then climbed into the driver's seat and turned the car around, heading back to Arden Hills. Locked in the stifling trunk, Mary and Beth whispered prayers to each other for what felt like hours. They both worked to free themselves during the drive, Beth became so sweaty that she was able to slip the rope off her wrist. She started working to untie her mother. 
During that time, back in Arden Hills, at about 5.30 p.m., a six-year-old boy named Jason Wilkman and his friend Timmy went outside to play on a dirt mound on the edge of Hazelnut Park near Timmy's home. It was the same park where Ming stashed his van earlier in the day. At some point while they played, Ming pulled Mary's car into a parking lot bordering the park. He didn't notice the two boys. Ming got out of the car and looked inside the trunk. He saw that Beth had freed herself from the ropes and had nearly finished untying Mary. Ming grew angry. He retied the ropes, then placed a heavy spare tire on top of them so that they couldn't move. The young boys watched Ming bend over his trunk. They were curious, but they couldn't see what he was doing. Jason Wilkman wanted a better look, so he strode towards the back of the car. Jason started to say hello, but then he stopped. He saw Mary and Beth tied up in the trunk. Ming whipped around and realized that he wasn't alone. He grabbed the boy and threw him into the trunk. Then he hurried back into the car and sped away. Jason's friend Timmy stood stunned for a moment, watching the car leave. Then he raced home to tell his mother Isabel what had happened. She immediately called the police. Within 10 minutes of the reported kidnapping, sheriff's deputies had swarmed the park to search the area. Other children in the park described the car they had seen speed away, a green Ford. Law enforcement officers didn't realize it yet, but they were describing Mary Stauffer's car. At the same time, Mary's husband, Irving, was beginning to wonder where his wife and daughter were. He had expected them to be finished at the hair salon hours ago. They had dinner plans with Mary's sister, and it was not like Mary to be late. While law enforcement officers convened in Hazelnut Park to look for Jason Wilkman, Irving called friends and family to see if they had heard from Mary, but nobody had. Locked in Ming's trunk, Mary and Beth tried to comfort Jason Wilkman. Mary calmed the children down by praying with them, trying not to let on how terrified she was. She had no idea what was happening, where Ming was taking them, or even who Ming was. She could tell from the flow of traffic that Ming was driving further and further away from the city again, away from witnesses. Mary noted that the surface beneath them changed from a smooth paved highway to uneven dirt roads. After a while, the car came to a sudden stop as Ming pulled over in a swampy area thick with brush. Ming opened the trunk and pulled Jason out. He grabbed a tire iron and then slammed the trunk closed again. Ming never admitted precisely what he did next. Experts later concluded that Ming likely led Jason into the woods and hit him with a tire iron twice in the back of the skull, killing the boy. He left Jason's body in the brush and returned to the car. Once again, Ming turned Mary's car back towards Arden Hills. By the time he got back to town, a massive search party was combing the area, looking for the man who took Jason Wilkman. But Ming managed to avoid notice. 
he parked Mary's car in a quiet area about half a mile north of the park, with Mary and Beth still inside, and then left the area on foot. When he finally came back, he blindfolded his captives and guided them into his van. At that point, Irving was frantic. He called the sheriff twice over the course of the evening, but the dispatcher, while sympathetic, did not yet see the situation as an emergency. Officials didn't want to take any resources away from the search for six-year-old Jason Wilkman to investigate a grown woman who was only a few hours late. They reassured Irving that Mary had probably just gone to do some extra shopping after her hair appointment. But when Irving called the sheriff's office for a third time around 10.45 p.m., one of the dispatchers noted that Bethel University was close to Hazelnut Park, where Jason was abducted. When two deputies arrived to question Irving, he gave them the make and model of Mary Stauffer's vehicle. The officers quickly realized that his description matched that of the car driven by Jason's abductor. The Ramsey County Sheriff immediately contacted the FBI to inform them that a mother and daughter, as well as a little boy, had been kidnapped. Oblivious to the activity of law enforcement, Ming pulled into the backyard of his home just before midnight. He grabbed eight-year-old Beth and carried her out of the van. He brought her inside the house and shoved her into the bedroom closet. Then, he went back for Mary. Mary thought she heard Ming call her Mrs. Stauffer, but she assumed she misheard. She still didn't recognize her kidnapper, and she didn't see how he could know her. Ming led her to his room. He took off her blindfold and ordered her to join Beth inside the closet. Mary turned and faced Ming. She asked him, Who are you? And what do you want? Ming didn't answer. He simply pushed her into the closet and slammed the door shut. Then, he wedged a piece of furniture in front of the door, trapping them inside. Mary looked around the closet, noting the blanket and pillow and a bucket that had been placed in the corner for them to relieve themselves. She realized that their abductor whoever he was, intended for them to stay there indefinitely. Overcome with dread and terror, Mary clung to her daughter and began to pray. Thanks again for tuning into Crimes of Passion. We will be back Wednesday with part two of Ming Sen Shu and Mary Stauffer's story. We'll discuss how Ming held Mary and her daughter captive and how she daringly defied his control. You can find more episodes of Crimes of Passion, as well as all of ParCast's other shows, on Spotify or your favorite podcast directory. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time when true love meets true crime. 
Crimes of Passion was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, with sound design by Michael Langsner, production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Paul Mahler, Maggie Admire, and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Crimes of Passion was written by Christina Pamies. I'm Lainey Hobbs. Mm-hmm.